Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you 24-7 with supplies and solutions for every industry and access to product specialists ready to help. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. As a parent, no two days are ever the same. At Care.com, you can find trusted and flexible sitters to help manage your family's ever-changing schedule. Care.com can even help you out with housekeepers, dog walkers, senior caregivers, and more. So you can find care for all you love. And 100% of caregivers who use Care.com have been background checked with CareCheck, a key first step in hiring confidently. To get the help you need to make it all work, sign up now and find a great sitter at Care.com. Good morning, good afternoon, and good night, and welcome to T-Pain's Nappy Boy Radio Podcast, the most fun you'll ever listen to while you're folding your clothes. Now let's get this straight, this is not your average podcast. T-Pain's Nappy Boy Radio is super fun, super crazy, it's pretty much an in-your-face conversation. That's the good thing about us, we don't do interviews, we do conversations. All of my guests, all of my co-hosts, we chill, we drink, we play games, we have the song of the week, we have the creative curse word of the week, as long as you're having fun as our guest. Speaking of guests, each week I'm going to go through my whole contact list and dive head first into the world of music, gaming, exotic cars, tech, strippers probably, doctors probably, probably strippers that are only stripping so they can pay for tuition to become a doctor. You never know. My wife is a certified bartender. She'll make you a drink while you're here. We'll get you drunk and make you play VR after. It's a lot going on, but that's what it's all about over here at T-Pain's Nappy Boy Radio Podcast. See you soon, baby! Welcome to Real GM Radio. I'm Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Jared Dubin, talented writer all over the place, including 538. And as you would expect, we spend a vast majority of the time talking about the conference finals, one of which is completed as we're recording this, one of which is yet to be completed. And also the NBA finals to come. And because Jared and I are both CAP CBA nerds, we also talk about the off season, which is approaching rapidly, but thinking a lot about that recently. So really enjoyed the podcast. Hope you enjoy it too. And here it is. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. So we're recording this on Saturday during the day, and I will give you the choice on whether you want to start with the completed Western Conference Finals or the not yet completed Eastern Conference Finals first. <laughs> Let's start with the West, the West, I guess. It is already done. So it's, you know, Everything we're going to say will be relevant as opposed to, you know, if something happens on Saturday night. Um, yeah, so let's let's start with the Suns. Yeah, something that's impressed me with the Suns, and yeah, it would have been very different if the if the Lakers had been healthier. You know, that was something that changed the complexity of that, the complexion of that series. But mm-hmm. I've been impressed with how it seems like the Suns keep, the coaching staff keeps coming up with new wrinkles and they start executing certain things better defensively over the course of a series. And I think that that will help them a lot in the NBA Finals, whichever opponent they face, just because the, I mean, presumably either team that makes it out of the East is going to be healthier than they are right now. I mean, at least that's the hope. But I think as great as Trey and hope, you know, maybe Giannis can play, those guys are, I don't think either one of those teams is this really complicated puzzle that's impossible to figure out. 
Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, especially because we've seen the Bucks offense in the playoffs so many times yeah. at this point. So it's not like, you know, they do stuff a little bit differently than they used to in the past, just in terms of like having a guy in a dunker spot on occasion, things like that. Um, so there are a couple more wrinkles than maybe there used to be, but, uh, the, the offense has still been somewhat of a, not necessarily a problem, but it's certainly been the weaker side of the ball for them. It's been a problem so at some points for sure. Yeah. Like the first um, half during of the game four series. and the yeah. series. Yeah. Uh, but you know, their defense is what's carried them through the playoffs. And I'm interested to see, especially if they get through how the Suns offense attacks that defense, which, you know, it's not a lot different than necessarily what they've seen so far. You know, the Lakers play some play some drop stuff. The 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 um, the Nuggets tend to have Jokic come out like a little bit higher, um, so it's like a little bit different than that. But the the Clippers, even though they started off switching basically everything, they did play some drop stuff with like Marcus Morris at the five. Yep. So it's not like the Suns haven't seen anything like that and don't know how to attack it. Um, during the playoffs, but I'm interested to see what it looks like against a team that's, you know, so much more solid in the principles than a lo- than most of the teams they've played so far. Well, you know, and, like and has better personnel to execute it if we're talking about the Lakers as they existed in the end of that series. You know, like, yeah, sure. If we're talking right. about, if we're talking about the peak Lakers, then it's that, but the Suns. Right. Yeah. But, you know, the Lakers with no Anthony Davis and LeBron not at full strength and, you know, I think KCP was out for. He missed a one couple of games, the, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so long ago at this point. Yeah. But well, yeah, and, I mean, and, and so many injuries ago at this point. Oh yeah. Um, but the the way the Suns have, like you said, added wrinkles throughout the playoffs to take advantage of whatever the other team is doing defensively is really impressive. Um, we talked about this in the the five thirty eight Slack chat that we had come out uh, yesterday, Friday. Um, the job Monty Williams has done both in the regular season and in the playoffs is just so good. I mean, the guy's just a fantastic coach and in any year where the Knicks didn't make the playoffs, he would have been like the slam dunk coach of the year. And he did win the version voted on by, uh, by the coaches, you know, deservingly. So like he was just as deserving as Tibbs in that award and, um, he's just done a great job. Yeah, and the Suns, what has been consistently impressive to me is how they run really good stuff and they run it incredibly well. Like they're very, they're very effective. They know what they're doing out there. And I'm sure there are people who put all that praise on Chris Paul, but A, they often execute extremely well when Chris Paul's not on the floor. And like mm-hmm. you have to, you know, pick your sets right and everything else. It's not like they're just like their, their offense is give the ball, give the ball to Chris Paul or Devin Booker at the top and make it work, except in certain circumstances where I think that's been reasonably effective because they pick their spot. And so I, I think that Williams and, and his staff, but I, I mean, you always give it to like the, the top of that pyramid is, is that the coach deserves a ton of credit for it. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's tough to deny. Like yeah. it's, yeah, I mean, well, it's, it's, it's a really impressive team just in terms of the way they're able to play a lot of different styles. Like th- what they want to do generally is, is slow it down and out physical you and out shoot you and out execute you. That's, you know, basically the, the characteristic of all Chris Paul teams for the most part. And the Suns are a lot like that. But I think they've shown throughout the playoffs that they have the ability to play other ways, you know, especially in the first two games of the conference finals when Chris was out and campaign was pushing the pace so much more than they ever would, you know, during their normal, I guess, whatever you want to call it, 
uh, their normal rotation, and they showed the ability to win that way against, you know, a smaller unit. And then the, the Clippers went back bigger, and they struggled a little bit and then figured it out. And then, like, you know, they've, they've shown sort of a chameleon-esque capability throughout the playoffs that's really impressive, too, and which I think um, is sort of not necessarily underratedly, but I do think it's become over the last few years, like, the most important quality in a playoff team, like you need to be able to, you can't just do one thing and win that way. I just don't think that's the way to win in the NBA anymore. I think, you know, the Raptors showed it a couple of years ago. Um, and, and I think that the Suns are showing it this year where the more you can do in terms of being able to play big, small, fast, slow, switch, drop, do whatever. Like they've even switched a bunch with Aiton way more than they did, um, during the regular season where he was like on the low end. Uh, of big men in terms of actually switching pick and rolls and they've trusted him to do that a little bit more in the playoffs not not all the time or anything but you know it's okay if he gets left on an island he can handle himself enough in space to not get destroyed and that's such a valuable thing being able to do so much different stuff in the playoffs oh absolutely and when you were talking about the the sons as a chameleon it reminded me uh so nate and i this will sound different but i'll connect it back Nate and I did our uh, video, our scout of Evan Mobley, the USC center, mm-hmm. um, on, and, and I brought up this theory that I have with, with big men in the NBA, which is basically if you are going to be that really high-end, valuable guy, there are kind of two different tracks that you can use. One of them is you're versatile enough defensively that you can't get played off the floor. And so I think mm-hmm. Bam Adebayo is the archetype there, you know, because he can do so many systems. Right. We saw the success of Miami you could throw in. And a lot of the other guys who fit that are natural power forwards. And I mean, Bam is in many ways power forward size, but he's so strong, it doesn't matter. Um, like Draymond or Pascal Siakam or some of the other guys. Mm-hmm. But so, so that's one way of doing it. And that's, I would argue, what the Suns are doing. Then the other way to succeed is to be so good at what you do that your team is never going to take you off the floor anyway. And whether that's that you don't have flaws or that you your flaws are worth it, like Jokic is probably the best example there. Or, right. you know, Embiid isn't defensively versatile, but he's so incredible that you're, you're not going to really take him off the floor. And what's interesting about this year in particular, but I think you could argue more broadly, and you brought up the Raptors, and I think that's a very good one, is that because... Over the course of four series, you face so many different opponents with so many different strengths and weaknesses. And yeah, maybe in certain circumstances, you're going to face one that is less competitive due to talent. Maybe you're a really good seed and you happen to face a weak team or injury. But to make it through a jumbled box of talented teams, teams that are good enough to make it into the playoffs and then make it through a round or two or three, is that you're going to, the odds are you're going to end up with very different opposition. And Mm. so the best way, other than just a ridiculous talent advantage of doing that, is to be able to succeed in different ways, offensively, defensively, or ideally both. And, And that's something that is both a testament to James Jones as general managing. I think he has done a very good job. There was a time when I was more skeptical of that, but when you look at kind of how things have worked out, and it's, he's not done a perfect job. You know, like, I, I, I mean, Jalen Smith, we'll see how that works out. But they have a lot of talent, and they can do, they can succeed in a lot of different ways. And that, I think, has been so important because so much of the playoffs is starting out with thought experiments of, like, what do we think will work? And then being able to adapt when things do and do not, which inevitably both things will happen over the course of a playoff series or a playoffs more broadly. Right. Um, so I've got three sort of um, tangential, I guess, responses to each of the things you said. First, James Jones, obviously, just putting his education from the best school in the country to ah. good use. 
Um, shout out to James Jones, uh, now on his like ninth finals or something like that. Um, so good for him. Good for the U. Very happy for him. Um, second, I think that, you know, you mentioned you're going to face a lot of different opponents, obviously in the play. Like if you go to the finals, by definition, you have to face four different opponents in the playoffs. And it's possible that they could play similarly. It's possible they could play much differently. And I think, I think back to like the, like the, the Cavs Celtics magic triumvirate back in like 2008 to 2010, where they were building teams to beat each other. And because they did that, they got knocked off before they got to the conference finals against the team that they built a team to beat against. Um, and that happened to the, to the Celtics, I think, in 09, and then the Cavs in 10, whichever it was, like they, the Celtics and Cavs built teams to beat each other and got knocked off by the Magic because the Magic played much differently and they weren't equipped to play against them. Um, yeah, and, and, I think and, and Garnett now. got hurt in one of those series. Yes. Um, and, and I think it's similar now. You shouldn't be building a team to beat a specific team. You should be building a team to play against every kind of team. Um, and I think that connects to something that we've talked about before where I think the best draft strategy, if it's not like if you're not getting, you know, one of those type of big men that you mentioned where it's just they're good enough at everything that they can't get played off the floor or they're so good at one thing that you don't want to take them off the floor. For me, like the best is just to load up on wings of all different sizes, guys like six four to six nine that have you know all different kinds of skill sets. You might need shooters, you might need defenders, you might need three and D guys, you might need a guy who's like a secondary creator, like because that's the way to make yourself versatile enough to be able to play against every team. It's like you need those guys with the in-between sizes where if you need to, you can play one of them, two of them, three of them, four of them at once with either your center or or your point guard or whatever it is. And, like, you need big ball handlers. You need big defenders. You need big, like, you know what I'm trying to say? Like I do. Because you need to be able to do so many different things in the playoffs, you need the guys that can do all of those different things. The best way to find them is to just keep going after wings and then, you know, if you need a center, you can find like your Nerlens Noel type on the free agent market. You know, you can find a point guard who is capable on the free agent market. If you can get a star point guard early in the draft, do that because that's the, pretty much the only way you're going to be able to have an efficient offense is by having a star point guard. But if you're in, you know, the back of the lottery or whatever, like those guys might not be good enough at point guard, at least early enough that you're trying to contend, you might even be better off like, you know, we're going to go after Chris Paul in a trade or Kyle Lowry or, you know, Mike Conley or whatever. Like there are point guards that you know will be able to run an efficient offense for you and you're going to need the wings at some point. You might as well get them. Like, you know, Mikael Bridges was there for, for the Suns. Like, I'm sort of like talking myself in circles here and like there are certain cases where you're better off taking the point guard or better off taking the big man or whatever. But I think in a lot of cases you're better off just defaulting to like, we're going to need five like rotation or better caliber wings to be a successful playoff team. Anyway, we might as well go after them in the draft. So they're cheap. Right. And I, I, I really embraced that idea. And I think there are a couple other arguments in favor of it that you didn't mention that I think are, are worth, worth really thinking about. So one is that you're going to need, you talked about like volume. And I think that the success rate on 
drafting any position, but wings notably among them, is fairly low. So that means you need to try a lot of things. And wings mm-hmm. are very hard to get once they've been established. Like you think about the return that somebody like Robert Covington, a talented player to be sure, but not somebody who runs your offense, not somebody who I think is going to be great if he's your best defender. Like he's a great in the team concept, but you know, you get into those sorts of things, but he's still, you know, two first round picks. You know, you're, you're in that, you're in that range. Aaron Gordon, who's kind of a, a hybrid, he kind of bridges a couple gaps. But then the other one is this. When you're at the extremes, height-wise, so let's say you're point guard and, and center, unless you're going to do the Rick Carlisle energizer bunny and have, like, in a second unit typically, have multiple point guard-sized guys or something else like that, generally speaking, if somebody either is not starter quality or you have a superior player, they're not going to play very much. Whereas, mm-hmm. and except in the case of injury, which, sure, there's absolutely value in that. Whereas with wings... If somebody rats, they end up being a 20-minute-a-game instead of a 35-minute-a-game guy, yeah, that sucks. But you still need a lot of those. Like, you still need, as you you talked about the idea of five, like five wings. Like, yeah, you still need two or three of those types of players, too. If And, and that assumes that you get three players above them, which is far from a guarantee. And they need different skill sets. They... You don't know exactly how they're going to develop. I mean, the, the shakiness of 3 and D is always really fascinating where it's like if either thing, you know, because basically with the reason somebody's called 3 and D is because they can't do a whole lot else. And that's, that's not a bad thing. If all you could, if you could do those two things well, that's all you need to do. But you probably can't handle the ball super well. You know, you can't make those sorts of decisions, everything else. And so it can be very finicky and it can be temporary and all of that. And so throwing resources at it, not only for, the success rate and everything else, but also because they don't change teams very often unless they're like superstars and have the agency because teams are going to pay those players. And so you having match rights, having bird rights is very valuable. Yeah, and I think that those are probably like your best second draft targets too. Yes. Um if if like, they like to me, if if they have the physical tools that they're like a capable player, and as much as I you know, I'm the Archbishop of the Church of Azonia, like that that's the type of player that you don't necessarily run the run and roll the dice on as many times. Whereas somebody like PJ Tucker, who bounced around a lot early in his career, or West well, I mean West Matthews was always good was always good basically once he kind of broke out, but like like Wes Matthews, I think, is a great example where he's contributed on a lot of different teams over the years at varying, diff- at varying levels of salary and varying roles. Yeah, I mean, I was going to go like even further down the the West totem pole. Like Wesley Johnson was a worthwhile second draft target yeah. because of his athleticism and size, and you know he well, did and, contribute at one point on a Clippers team. It's not like he was that good, well, but Josh it Jackson, made sense to who Josh, Josh Jackson, Jackson, who perfect, I didn't love, yeah. as, I didn't love as a prospect. Kind of you know washed out and everything that happened there, but still is a use like a useful NBA player. Yeah, and I mean like it's. It's hard to find those guys. There's a reason everybody wants them. So you might as well try to get as many of them as you can. Um, and that's, you know, I think that the Suns, they don't have, you know, eight of them or whatever, but like they've got three starter quality guys or, or better in Bridges, Crowder and Cam Johnson. And then they've sort of flipped between Tory Craig, um, who just came back, Nader, like, on any given night, you might need to, you know, break glass in case of emergency with one of those guys. And they even have guys that are, you know, on the smaller side for that role, but, you know, in a pinch could be wing types like Etwan Moore, Langston Galloway, yep. like, you know, guys that 
handle a little bit, shoot a little bit, just work incredibly hard on defense. And, you know, they've got some smaller guys like that and they've got some bigger guys like that. And, you know, for them, the bigger guys happen to be the better players, which makes sense for them because they have, um, they have Chris Paul and Devin Booker. So you're not going to need like Langston Galloway and Javon Carter as much as you're going to need, you know, the bigger wing types. So, you know, I think you got to take that into consideration too. Like, you know, what is your roster built around when you're looking for, you know, which type of wings do you need to go after? Where, you know, for, they need the bigger wings where like if you're the Lakers and you have LeBron and Anthony Davis, you might need like the smaller wings or, or actually you probably need both because LeBron doesn't want to defend force. So, <laughs> but you know, that's why like a guy like KCP makes more sense for them than he would for the Suns, for example. Right. And you brought up KCP and I, I think of Patrick Beverly in kind of a similar mode of a player who now that would be in a very challenging spot were it not for the growing tide of bigger players who can run an offense. Like if you want mm-hmm. LeBron is certainly the poster child right now, but Luca and Harden and for the people who believe in Ben Simmons, Ben Simmons, like, and Kate Cunningham, I haven't watched this film yet, but people are saying that about him. Like the players that can run an offense successfully and don't have to defend the other team's point guard. Yeah, one of the things that opens up you up for, and we'll see if Dallas does this over the next couple of years, or I mean, they have with Harden, is that you can go to maybe more of a switching system because you can you you have you can play more like sized guys. Like one way to, you know, it's it's sort of the spiritual analog to the idea I've talked about before with Kristaps Porzingis, where at times people have thought, oh, that's so great, you have Kristaps Porzingis, a, a five man who can shoot, you can play a non shooter. But the alternative is. You just don't. You know, you play you play five out, and we've seen at varying times in the playoffs how five out systems can be really destructive. But part of why I love basketball is that you can go in a lot of different directions. I mean, like, and Porzingis' team, Dallas, did that, where it's like talented players who create matchup problems. You don't have to just go five out. You can play Boban and see if it works and then play a zone and try it out, and then maybe it'll work for a game or two, and then the other team figures it out, and then you move on. Yeah, I mean, some of that is also you might have to go to a zone because Porzingis is hurt and can't move. Yes. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it does allow you, when you have guys with different skill sets, it obviously allows you to do, or not different skill sets, but unique skill sets for their size, whether it's, you know, a ball-handling wing or a shooting big or a switchable big. Like, it allows you to do a bunch of those different things. So not only do you need the like-sized guys to be able to make all the different lineups work, you also need one of the special skill guys to put those guys in position where they can do what they do best and just what they do best instead of having to do a bunch of different things that they're not necessarily good at. Right, like I think of the Orlando Magic over a couple years as being an example of this where they had players that could slot in well in a pecking order. They just didn't have the person at the top to make everybody in the right spot. And they were able to succeed at varying levels without it. You know, like the year that Augustine was great and then the year the year that they were more feisty in the playoffs. But those players are hard to find too. And so I, I think though what one of the challenges that happens is that you teams I think are sometimes overly optimistic about whether their best guy can be the guy or will be the guy. And like now, I was critical of the Suns for that with Devin Booker, and then he has become that player to his immense credit. I mean, he's he's phenomenal now, and he's been he's grown so much over the last three years. But 
that's what I, I think about the Cavs for this sometimes because Cleveland, I, I credit them with basically it seemed like what they thought, you know, they drafted Colin Sexton, thought he was the BPA, best mm-hmm. player prospect available. Then the next year, they thought that Darius Garland was the best player available. Now it's possible that neither, that either the both, that those, that those were misevaluations or that, you know, they, that they were correct evaluations, but either way, you want to, you want to give yourself that kind of, you want to give yourself that kind of a chance because of the success rate. And yes, those guys aren't wings, but the idea being, by the time you know, things are going to be a lot more settled. And I think the Suns roster is a great example of that. Yeah, so um, I think that the, the Cavs are a good example of something that I think um, I think about a lot with the draft, where people. So I'm I'm going to go back to when I was doing the Locked On Knicks back in the day, and we did you know like a network wide mock draft, and people were angry that I decided with the eighth pick at the time to take Jason Tatum instead of taking a point guard because obviously the Knicks have not had good point guard play in forever. And at the time uh, it was like, well, how's he going to play with Porzingis and like, what's the fit and how are you going to get a point guard? They can't go into next season without a point guard. And it's like, if you're in a position where your team is not good enough and doesn't have necessarily the top star to anchor a team, you can't worry about fit. And you can't worry about what your needs are because your needs might be different by the time you're ready to win. And, you know, the world doesn't end at the end of whatever season is coming up. You know, you're going to need players in the years beyond that. And, like, you need to take the best guy regardless of what position he is. I would make an exception if you already have – like a starter caliber center and you think a center is the best guy available. I don't necessarily know that I would say you have to take that guy unless it's, you know, a special center process. Like if it's, if you think Zion is a center and you already have a starter caliber center, you still take Zion. Like, you know, and, and obviously he's not become a center in the couple of years since, but if, if you were coming into that draft thinking he was a center, you still take him in that scenario. But, you know, if you have, like go to the Suns, let's say they had a starting caliber center on their roster at the time, then it wouldn't have made sense to me at the time to take eight. I still think they should have taken Luca. Not that Aiton hasn't turned into a good player in his own right and better than a lot of people sold him as, I think. But if they had a starting caliber center, then that wouldn't like, I don't think you make that the pick because, and not for fit reasons, but because centers are just not something that you necessarily need multiple of. I think we've seen that with the Jazz this year, for example, where they have Rudy Gobert and they spend their mid-level on Derek Favors and they spend their draft pick on Azabuki. And it's just, it's not a good use of resources. You need guys at other positions, even if you think, you know, Azabuki is the best guy available late in the first round. Like, you just don't need that, you know? Um, so they're... And yeah, along those lines, you were talking about the idea of, you know, like drafting, drafting the right player. The other one that I think some teams get wrong a lot is this guy can help us right now, or this is something we need right now. A, very few young players help you immediately. And, or like the, the like selling tickets as the hometown guy. You know what really sells tickets? Having good players. You know, like yeah. that, the, you, they're, all these ideas of like, oh, this player is established in college and people know who they are. But, you know, I don't think Jimmer Fredette sold a ton of tickets in the United States because he just wasn't good enough at basketball. And I think that Carmelo Anthony did, and it's not because of the time he spent at Syracuse. It's because he's a Hall of Fame NBA player. 
And yeah. that is a like it, it everyone I, I think sometimes though that might be media buying into stuff. Like I don't know if that's actually the way certain front offices make make decisions. But tying back is interesting because this connects to a team that we've been discussing a lot during this. I think a lot about and again, we don't know everything that's working working through a front office, but I think about Josh Jackson. And so part of the zeitgeist reason that the Suns drafted Josh Jackson was that they already had a point guard. They remember they were just coming out of this time when they had a billion point guards. They had Eric Bledsoe, Goran Dragic, and Isaiah Thomas at the same time. <laughs> and Dragic was in Miami by this point, and Isaiah was in Boston by this point. But they still had Eric Bledsoe, and Bledsoe is a you know was a talented player who I believe was under contract for a little while. Then I think that was right around either he was a, like that was right around the time he signed his new deal. I can't remember whether it had already happened or was about to. But it sounds like part of the reason that the front office passed on De'Aaron Fox was because they thought they had that position handled. And I think it was a matter of months later that Eric Bledsoe tweeted, I don't want to be here anymore. And all of a sudden they needed it. And now if you think Josh Jackson Yeah, but that was about being at the hairdresser. (laughs) Yeah, of course, of course. (laughs) And so I, I think that... There is also this idea, like, and so it's it, you. In certain ways, this runs against what we've been talking about before, but in certain ways, it runs alongside of it, which is the things that you feel are certain are actually less certain. Unless you have a player under contract and he's great and he's LeBron James, the cyborg sent from the future to rule basketball, things can change really, really quickly. Whether that be that the player has some sort of injury or that they decide they don't want to be there anymore or anything like that, and that's why, to me, like. I would go so aggressively after best prospect available is that mm-hmm. the world of basketball is exceedingly uncertain. And the only thing we know that's going to win is talent. And so if you think somebody can do it, and like, that was why I went crazy, um, like with, with guys like Jared Sull, what the, the Sullinger Swanigan, like the, that type of like power forward that can't really play center group is it's like, there's no place for them in really any circumstance. So, I mean, mm-hmm. most of those guys didn't go super high, but the, the, like to me, even when you get a little bit later, if you can't have a cogent theory of how this player is going to succeed, that's another way that you can run into a real big problem. Or, and you should also, this is the other one along those same lines, if you can you know, like a, a way that they'll succeed within the league as it exists or could in a couple of years, which is if you can't explain to me why somebody could fail, then you're also misevaluating them because nobody is perfect. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I agree with all of that. I think it's also just like the concept that needs are not static. Yes. Like, you know, well, and um, strengths are not static either, right? Like, and De- like Devin Booker is a meaningfully different player now than we thought he was going to be. Like, he's more capable with the ball in his hands. He's not as good a shooter. Like a straight up, like Booker and Beal. It's the most fascinating parallel between. Those two <laughs> I guys. literally made that comparison in the in the five thirty eight select. they were both talented guys who who were one and done, or like I can't remember Beal was one or two years, and and were talented then. And everyone's like, oh, they're a shooter, and they might be able to do other things, and they're doing the other things that an all-star level and then they're not doing the shooting at an all-star level yeah although Beal did shoot better earlier in his career yes than, than Booker has early in his career but a lot of it is Booker's taking you know obviously incredibly difficult shots right that doesn't mean he's not a good shooter it just means he's not a Ray Allen level three-point shooter sure he's still a very good shooter but there's you know there is a slight difference and I, I think he's become a better player like you said, a better overall offensive player without being as good a shooter as he was sold as. Um, so, you know, like, you know it, it goes back to, like you said, strengths are not necessarily what we think the, uh, they are. Weaknesses might not be what we think they are. And in the case of the draft, 
like by the time a rookie or a draft pick is really ready to contribute with the exception of, you know, special guys that you're building your team around in the first place, like you're probably going to have a different looking team than you do now. Like if you're making the 16th pick or whatever and picking someone because, you know, you need a backup point guard, like that guy's probably not going to be a good backup point guard as a rookie and you might need, you know, a power forward or you might need uh, an off guard by that. Like you might not need what you think you need. So you might as well just take the best guy. Right. And then you can bridge and fill those gaps through trades and free agency like that, because you're at that point getting more established players on more specific contracts that that at least many of the times are ready to contribute right away. So you're this is why, by the way, this is why I think that they should go to um, the the way the NFL does it, where free agency is before the draft. So you can fill your needs in free agency and not have to worry about filling needs. I, I think draft. it would I think it would lead to teams making smarter decisions, but I also one of the things that I like about it is the worry I ha- you know so talking about the flaws that the, the the teams make is that teams would then go in this kind of weird direction of like oh my god we still have this need we're going to like I, I I agree with you in terms of like the merit and all that um of it, it is a worthwhile idea and because I think it would lead to better teams for the most part because you would solve the problems in a more cogent way and then you could theoretically do it. But I'm not, I, I just – I always have a lack of faith that teams are going to do the quote-unquote right thing because that's the way they should be drafting anyway right now. Yeah, um, I agree. And I you know, I probably agree that they wouldn't end up doing the quote-unquote right thing. That's probably how it would work out. So, But you well, know, so let's, as let's, an let's, example, let's, yeah. um, that's – that's basically how, you know, not that they're a model of good management or anything, but that's how the, the Cowboys have handled things over the last several years, whereas they used to be the other way around. They'd, like, splash the pot in free agency for just, like, best player available and then draft to fill their needs. And it was not a good way of doing business. It was not an efficient use of resources and it wound up, you know, they wound up being quite a bad team for quite a long time in the early 2000s. And then when they finally changed things, they've not that they've had a ton of success, but they've at least done better in the draft by just picking the best guy and sort of using free agency as a way to, well, now we don't necessarily need to reach at this spot for a guy that we need in the draft. Yeah, it makes it makes a lot of sense to me. And what really, whatever sport, because it's exceedingly rare in almost any of them that there's some that somebody you pick is going to be ready to help you. And ready to help you doesn't always necessarily mean the same thing. Mm-hmm. And so like, you could get into a, a variety of different circumstances. And to get back to the Suns, I think part of what makes I mean beyond the fact that they're at the moment healthier than their likely opposition, whichever team that ends up being, mm-hmm. the malleability of the Suns. Like you think about somebody like Mikhail Bridges, who I thought had a pretty challenging conference finals overall, offensively and defensively. But I think he'll have more opportunities against either opponent just because they're not built the same way. Yeah, and I think also just like a guy like that where he's able to contribute in a big way despite not even that he doesn't have the ball, but just like his contributions for the most part aren't going to be dependent on his shooting or his scoring or like you need to find complementary players in the draft too. And, like, if you think that a guy in the draft is just, like, the best guy because he can be that type of player, like, you don't have to take, you know, I'll use the Knicks as an example again. 
you don't have to take Kevin Knox instead because you think there's, you know, a 10% chance that he can become a three level scorer and you don't think there's really that much of a chance of Bridges doing it when just like Bridges in the, the most likely case scenario is just going to help you so much more. Yeah, because you're going to, you're going to need a Bridges kind of no matter what. Uh, okay, let's, let's move a little bit to the East. This series has been so weird, partially because you have teams that have been inconsistent in terms of their strategy and execution, but also player avail- availability has been mm-hmm. so scattershot. Do you, I, I just basically don't have a read on this series. Do you have one? No. I mean, it's tough to have a read when, you know, both teams have their best player out. And, you know, we don't know if Trey will play tonight. We don't know if or when Giannis will play. Like, if they go to a game seven, I know Chris Haynes had the report yesterday that, you know, there's optimism that he could play. But what does that mean? Is he going to play? What's he going to look like if he does play? Like, it's hard to know what to expect when you don't know who's going to be on the court. Right. And when there is no guarantee that the coaches are going to maximize the opportunities that they have, like that was something that drove me crazy about the Bucks in game four was you're playing an opponent without Trey Young. There are specific limitations when the Hawks are on offense. And then their, you know, their defense, you could argue, is in many ways more capable because Young's there, but it's not like Lou Williams is any great shakes. And I thought that it was very frustrating for me with the Bucks, and this is nothing, nothing new. You and I had an extended conversation about Mike Budenholzer. I, that was less than a year ago because the playoffs were later last year, but, um, about like his lack of creativity and everything else is that to me, where you start, not necessarily where you finish is what is our biggest competitive advantage? What is their biggest competitive disadvantage and build a concept that works within that and then be ready to shift if that doesn't work. Yeah. And I, it's, the concept, uh, this is something that I've been talking about with a couple of people that like the concept of like pre-adjusting before the series, I yeah. think is something that coaches don't like to do or don't do often enough. I think Bud actually did it in the net series yes. where he had started, um, Forbes in the last, I think, two games of the Miami series after Dante got hurt. And then he said, you know what, we're going to need. PJ Tucker on the court basically at all times in this net series, we might as well just start him instead of Forbes. And I don't think that that, you know, I think they could have pre-adjusted again in this series to A, attack Trey Young more on defense and not let him camp out on PJ in the corner. Thank you. Granted, granted PJ has done a good job of offensive rebounding and capitalizing that way, but you know, they could have made Trey work some more on defense. And then I think that also would have allowed them to have PJ, like one of the things I think they've struggled with is guarding Gallo in the yes. series. And that's the kind of guy that PJ should be on. But because Gallo comes off the bench and PJ starts, he, they're like missing the rotation where he's not on the court to guard the guy that I think he probably should be guarding in this series. Like, well, so and also you don't, an also you don't concept. need PJ Tucker, like, so one of, one of the elements that, like, if I were building a strategy for a series is you think about more limited players and you go, what do they do? Do we need this in this moment? And P.J. Tucker is one of their best defenders. I think you probably – he's a part of many closing fives, and I thought he was immensely valuable against Brooklyn, for example. But there isn't really a place for him to be against this 
Hawks starting lineup. It's just, you know, the, and if they had DeAndre Hunter, maybe it would be different. I don't particularly think that it would be for specifically like, oh, you need P.J. Tucker out there because Hunter is not the type of guy who forces that. And if they're playing different teams, the, those rules can change. Like maybe if, if they make the finals with the Suns, maybe they think about it differently. They'll probably not. Like that that's actually my fear with Budenholzer in that series if they make it is like they're going to think, oh, well, P.J. Tucker's one of our best defenders. We'll need him out there. But he's I don't think he's going to be great on either of their guards. I can't – maybe he's guarded Booker or Paul at some point in the past. I don't remember it super well. I mean, obviously, he's Ben Paul's teammate, too. Um, but the idea of, yeah, okay, what do we do? And then the one that drove me more crazy, that's a fair one, is once the Hawks lost Trey Young, I know that the Bucks had had a lot of success, as they have over the years, with, with drop coverages. They have really good personnel for it. They have two rim protectors in their base lineups and everything else. But it's like, once the Hawks got to the point where there were only, like, two guys on their team who could dribble and create a good shot— then you can switch aggressively because there's nobody who's going to kill you. And for and to basically, to their credit, they did that in game five. Yes, and they did that and it worked spectacularly. And yeah. if they had done it in game four, this series would be over. Yeah, and I mean, it's also like you can bring guys further out onto the court, even if you're not going to switch. Like because Lou Williams is not beating you with the passes that Trey Young is right. going to beat you with. You know, you can put more pressure on the ball. And you can and help differently. Guys. You could you could structure your help responsibilities a little differently if you want to because he's not going to make that like crazy cross-court pass with the velocity where that guy's going to, you know, just pop it right away. Right. And you can like you can put more pressure on guys to make plays that they're not used to making and probably not capable of making. Um I think especially when it's the other team's point guard that's out, that's like the best way to make your defense better is just ramp up the pressure on guys that are not capable of making the type of plays that that guy is. Yeah. And the Hawks do have more kind of complimentary creators than a lot of teams do. That's one of the things that Travis Schlenk added in the 2020 offseason with Bogdanovich and Gallinari and a few other guys. And I think that Bogdanovich's injury has definitely affected things and, you know, Gallinari not being the same player, though he's had some nice games in this series. And I think that that you can do some stuff, but the, the, the floor of that group is, is maybe higher than for some teams if they were missing their, you know, heliocentric star. But their ceiling yes. is not super high. Like, you know, there's only so far you can go, and the Hawks' defense has been incredibly limited, especially in transition, and you can go to all these competitive advantages. And that's the other thing that's driven me crazy about the Bucks over the years is just calibrating what is a good shot, what is a bad shot, what can we what can we work towards? And I, I think back a lot to something, I think it was Harrison Barnes, might have been Clay Thompson, said the Warriors won championship Steve Kerr's first season, and, you know, in 15, and they said, we're still figuring out what's a good shot and a bad shot in this offense because they had come from Mark Jackson, who didn't have those same standards and didn't hold his players accountable. They didn't hold themselves accountable. And it's kind of weird to say that in a conference finals because you usually think, like, you're not going to get as good shots. And you've, we've seen some series that are just defensive wars between teams that are talented. I mean, there were, there were times in the Nets series where it's just like these guys are taking really hard shots, but that's the best thing they can get. Mm-hmm. But against the Hawks, that's not your standard because they're just not that good defensively. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's notable that I think through the first four games, they were creating better shots in second spectrum's shot quality metric than any team had in any series during the playoffs so far. Yeah. You know? Like, but at the same point, like, I, I, I see that and I understand where, where it's coming from, but there were, it seemed to me like there were a lot of, like, settles for jump shots for good shooters, but they were settles that you could have gotten something better if you really worked at it. Yeah, I think that's fair. I do think there is something to, like, I want to draw like a baseball analogy where 
there's a an issue in baseball where like everybody strikes out like you know thirty percent of at bats at this point. So why not stop working the count as much? Swing earlier in the count so you don't get into strikeout counts. If you're if one of your big issues, which the Bucks is a lot of times, is that your offense bogs down into nothing and you're you know working up against the end of the shot clock and not able to create a good shot. I do think there is merit to. If you have a good shot, you can take it just because we don't want to get in a situation where every trip down the floor, we're not creating a good shot because we're not doing enough quickly enough to get a good shot. So for them, so for them specifically, like don't work the count, take a good shot if it's there because one of their main issues is backing up against the shot clock and not being able to create a good enough shot in those situations. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. I don't want to talk a ton about the offseason. You and I have done that before. We'll do it again. But uh, the one thing, and I know that partially because it connects with the Knicks and partially just because I, I know you'll find it interesting, is the group that I've been grappling with, partially because it's the most talented, are the point guards. I mean, mm-hmm. so you have a lot of – you have good players that many of them could stay on their current teams but could also go elsewhere. And assessing – the expected salary for those players, assessing the years, you know, years can be in many ways more important than dollars, and also just, like, what kind of opportunity is going to be available, how these teams that have money assess that group is going to be really fascinating. Like, I mean, Dinwiddie's a, a key part of that because Dinwiddie is simultaneously younger than Lowry and Connolly, but also more injured than Lowry and Connolly. Mm-hmm. And I... I'm interested in how those, how their current teams, you know, the Raps, the Jazz, and the Nets to some extent, how they handle those negotiations, but also what those players want. Because Lowry, you know, he's going to have a lot of really interesting teams at the table, and maybe none of them is offering exactly what he wants. And Conley, depending on how 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 open he makes things, like he could have some really good offers on the table. And I, I think Dinwiddie, there's an there's an argument that Dinwiddie's going to have the best next three years of any of those guys. Yeah, I mean, I think you can throw Chris Paul in that group too. I would sure. expect. Sure, I just, that he's think, I just think he's not leaving. So no, I would just think he's going to try to get a three-year deal. Yeah, three. Um, I, I, my my rough number has been three years, a hundred million. Yeah, I mean that would take him to thirty-eight. So you know that's the longest he can sign. Probably you would assume going to be his last contract. And look, you can never put it past Robert Sarvers and not be willing to pay for somebody. So there is a possibility sure. that he does end up available for someone. But I think you know going back to what we said earlier, like about point guard play, like the best way for a team that wants to skip steps to skip steps is to make a huge upgrade at point guard. And this is like one of the best seasons to do it because of those guys that are potentially available. Like the jazz, if they want to keep Conley are like probably going to have to trade some guys unless they're willing to pay an enormous tax bill. They're already, I think they're at, at the, the tax, tax line. without Conley. Yeah. So they're going to have to trade whether it's Ingles or Boyan or Clarkson or whoever, maybe Ryan Smith is willing to pay the tax. I don't think he's willing to pay like warriors level tax, you know, like maybe he is, but it seems somewhat unlikely at least <laughs> so you know they're gonna have to do some finagling with their cap room but i think also like it's not just the one guy that's available yeah. you know lowry will be available um you don't know obviously what the raptors are going to do they they are in a position where because they got that fourth pick you know maybe they can say we're gonna you know let kyle go play for a contender and draft like jalen suggs or whatever and that you know could work pretty well for them and then Kyle can go, you know, try to contend at the end of his career. 
Um, so there are interesting options there with both of those guys. Um, and then, you know, there's, you mentioned Din, Dinwiddie, but there's also like Lonzo Ball. Sure. If you want to try to get, um, it's, you know, I don't think he's quite as capable of, if we sign him, we're going to have a good offense as the, the more veteran guys are just because they're not because they're veterans, but because they're better players than him. Yeah. It's possible Lonzo gets to that level, but we haven't seen that yet. So, you know, there are, if, for a team that wants to skip steps, there are options available this summer. And then I think, you know, the, the Knicks are in a halfway decent position to do that. But they have to do something which the Knicks basically never do, which is land their preferred target in free agency. Um, yeah. Which, you know, almost never happens in the history of the Knicks. Um, yeah, so, so you know, the, we'll the other see. One, but the other one I'm stumping for is – I, I it was funny. I was I was doing a pod with Nate, and I had a theory on this, and I looked it up, and it bore it bore out. Was that over the last three years? I excluded this year because he was hurt so much of it. Spencer Dinwiddie, he's he's not a great, you know, not an amazing shooter, but he's significantly better on spot ups than pull ups. And so I'm like, okay, Dinwiddie much better. I mean, a lot of guys are. That's a normal disparity because pull up shots are typically better contested. They're more difficult from a mechanic standpoint and everything else. Is I'm like, okay, Dinwiddie, he can absolutely create good offense. And so I was like, oh, he'd be a great fit on the Mavericks because in Dallas he can play oh, off. Wow. He can play off of Luca, mm-hmm. and, uh, and but then he can also be there. And yes, they have Jalen Brunson, and I like Jalen Brunson quite a bit. I think he's a wonderful success story, but. I, he's tiny. He's tiny, and when I think about the, I, I mean, yes, in a different world, a bunch of different players didn't sign extensions, and Dallas could get Paul George right now, or they could get Kawhi, who technically could be on the market, but I, I don't think functional he is. Or you know, Giannis was at one point the dream for them. I think of the players that are reasonably available, and yes, there are injury concerns and everything else. I think Dinwiddie is the guy who conceptually moves the needle the most for them. I think that makes sense. I was talking to someone the other day and I mentioned that, you know, if he were to leave because they, the Clippers can't pay him enough money, the Mavericks would be a good fit for Reggie Jackson just because oh, he basically play the same role as he did this year where he can create, but he's not the creator. Um, and he's been so much him. better defensively. Like I want to give Reggie Jackson immense credit for the work that he put in over the last couple series defensively. Oh yeah. I mean, he's just unbelievable during the playoffs and he, it's not like he wasn't uh, any good during the regular season, and this came sure. out of nowhere. You know, he had a pretty good regular season, like not as good as he was in the playoffs, obviously. Whether you know, not just because of the added volume, but like he wasn't quite as efficient during the regular season as he was during the playoffs, mostly because that would not have been possible. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it makes sense if you have those type of guys who are big enough to guard ones and some twos and can create, but you don't need them to be your primary creator. That's a good guy for Dallas. And I think Reggie's like 6'3", Spencer's like 6'5". Um, so that's an, an even better fit for them. The other kind of conceptual thing that I've been really interested in, and I haven't talked about this, I don't think, on a pod yet. I've been working in my brain on it, is, is the disparity between the one guard, the points, and the two guards, where the point guards are A, better players, and B, way older. And so what the amount of guaranteed money for Lowry, Conley, etc., is compared to Norm Powell, Evan Fournier, Tim Hardaway Jr. Mm -hmm. Because my theory of the case is that the point guards are significantly better players. They are, and especially because they're like, in certain cases are less versatile, but their versatility matters less. 
my instinct is that I'm not going to like at least one, but probably two of the three contracts signed by Fournier, Hardaway, and Powell. Fournier being the most likely just because there's not a great, there's not a great market for him, so maybe it sags. Whereas the point guards, like, they could end up being important right away, and, you know, yeah, they're older, and maybe the last year or two of the, if they get long contracts won't be great, but I'm, I would put serious money down that I'm going to like those three point guard contracts better than the top three, or, and they're not even necessarily the top three point guards, I'm assuming Chris Paul stays. So, like, the top three guys that could move teams versus the top three two guards that could move teams. Yeah, I think that seems like a pretty good bet. Um, especially because, you know, we've talked about, like, everybody wants wings. But I think we also have to remember, there's just not a lot of teams with the space to overpay those guys. True. Um, maybe the the incumbent teams overpay them, like Boston. I mean, I guess they only gave up two second-round picks. Uh, well, I, really think, I think for, Portland's going to overpay Powell. I, I think that's... I think yeah, that's Neil Olshay is liable to, to overpay. But I also think, like, I think I'd be okay with overpaying Norm Powell for three years. I think he's he's a good player. I kind of wanted the the Knicks to go after him if at the deadline. They obviously if didn't make any moves. If but. it's three and not four, I think that's a lot more palatable because then you know, like, let's say that I think they're going to start the year with Damian Lillard, and then if it doesn't work, then you just have a guy with two years left. That you can you can work with that. And I mean, yeah. I mean, Powell. I was very skeptical that he was. I thought he was being overpaid on his car contract. Then he was excellent the last two years. So. Who knows? Maybe the sky is still the limit for him. Yeah, I think that it's also like something that also affects it is there's a bunch of those, you know, wing type guys of varying sizes on the restricted market. Yes. Which makes things interesting, too. You know, like Josh Hart, Gary Trent, um, Malik Monk is obviously on the smaller side, but is more of a wing type now than a point guard type. Um, there are a bunch of those guys that I think would be good to go after if you're a team that, you know, everybody needs wings. But if, if you think you're a playoff team, like, I think those are good guys to go after and put pressure on those teams to make a decision of whether they want to match a deal or not. Yeah, that's definitely a very interesting point. This is going to be such a weird free agency. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm super excited what, like, for it, though. Four teams that have, that definitely have cap room, something like that. Something like that. Other teams can get there depending on, you know, player options, team options, non-guaranteed contracts and whatnot, but yeah. Okay, well, uh, we have game, we have game to watch later tonight. We'll have, we'll have something early in the week. I'm gonna thank you so much for taking time. That was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me, man. Always a good time. Thanks again to Jared Dubin for taking the time to come on. You can read him all over the internet, including at 538, and that's also a great reason to follow him on Twitter, J-A-D-U-B-I-N, and then the number five, because you can see wherever his stuff is, you can, you can check it out there. And love talking with him and kind of going between the different subjects that are so big around the NBA right now. Probably talk draft soon at some point because, uh, getting closer, but also I'm still watching film. So I'll have, probably have Sam on at some point. But if you want to support the show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can subscribe, download every episode. That is super important for Real GM Radio because it's never going to come out at a specific time, a specific day of the week because it's my availability, my guest availability. So you can, it'll just pop into your player whenever that is, whatever your podcast player of your choosing. Also, helping other people find the show. Typically, that's through either word of mouth or leaving a rating and a review. That helps other people find it, even though the show's been around a while. There's still people who don't know about it. So really do appreciate that. You can also check out my other work. Nate Duncan and I are doing Dunked on Prime and Dunked on, so public episodes, Sunday evening, Monday morning, whichever tickles your fancy, and then 
Dunk Time Prime is the other days of the week, and we're putting out a lot of great content, including our early draft stuff, which has been a lot of fun. We did a like an hour on Evan Mobley after we both watched a ton of film on him that came out, I think, on Monday, and off-season previews and talking about the games, of course, and everything else. So you can check that out. Should have some written work out relatively soon. Working working on a couple different things right now, and you can you know can keep an eye on my Twitter for all of that fun. And if you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, or indifferent, Daniel Rue NBA at gmail.com is the way to get to me. If you take the time to write it, I take the time to read it. That is a promise. I don't promise to respond, though I like to. Uh, I'm just not consistent. I admit that I'm not the most consistent at that, but I will read it. I do it every day before I go to bed. I have a specific inbox for those replies. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Thank mm-hmm. you.